You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. So David Letterman used to have a segment on The Late Show called Will It Float, right? Now, is anybody, first of all, please tell me, raise your hand if you know who David Letterman is. Okay, sometimes I wonder. I know I'm getting old, right? Has anyone seen Will It Float? Okay, a few of you, right? The concept was, was simple. A large tank on the stage. There were assistants, and an item would be taken, and they would ask the question, will it float in this tank? And Letterman would give his, his guess and his band leader, Paul Schaefer, they'd banter a little bit and they'd give their best guess and they would drop the item in the tank to see the, the result. Items included a cheese log that sank, a one pound box of saltwater taffy also sank, a can of cake frosting, surprisingly that floated, a tub of 2,000 paintballs floated, and so on. Now, of course, it's just, it seems silly, but Letterman, with his, his banter and his humor, made this extremely funny. But it's a simple experiment, right? You, you take something, you place it in. There's only two options. It's either going to sink to the bottom or it's going to stay on the surface. It's going to sink or it's going to float. Right? Now, as we continue, we're just in week two. We just kicked off this series through Ecclesiastes. We, we find that as we come to the end of chapter 1 and really all of chapter 2, that King Solomon is he's doing a similar experiment. Um, now, th this might be needless to say, if you know Ecclesiastes or if you were here last week, King Solomon is not nearly as funny as David Letterman. I just want to throw that out there. And the, the test that Solomon is doing, the preacher in Ecclesiastes, is something much more weighty right, than, than paintballs and cheese blocks. And the result is what's at stake is something certainly much more significant to us than a few laughs in a, in a comedic bit. But the idea is the same. Solomon is testing the things under the sun, earthly pursuits, to see whether or not they will provide the satisfaction and meaning that our hearts long for, or if they will sink into the engulfing waters of vanity. That's, that's what he's doing in our, our passage this morning. He tells us in, in verse 12, he sums up this experiment. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and search out wisdom by all that is done under heaven. So in our passage this morning, we're looking at chapter 1, verse 12, all the way to the end of chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 26. We, we see here what that tank is for Solomon. And for him, it is the human heart. This word heart occurs 14 times in our passage this morning. And maybe you have a copy of the ESV there, and, and you see a very helpful footnote that defines this for us. It says the Hebrew term for heart denotes the center of one's inner life, including the mind, the will, and the emotion. So what Solomon is saying is, listen, I didn't just think about these things for a bit and jot down some notes. 
This wasn't merely just an intellectual pursuit that was a hobby of mine for a while. He's saying, listen, I sought to test these pursuits with my whole person, with all of me, to see if they will satisfy. Will the pleasures of this world satisfy? Will the wisdom of this world satisfy? Will a a life of meaningful work satisfy? And as he goes on about this endeavor, as he pursues this, he finds it frustrating, which if you were here last week, you you understand that. He's already told us that everything under the sun is, is vanity. So he goes, as he goes about this test, he's frustrated because on the one hand, you can't ignore this question, what is the meaning of life? You can suppress it, but there are going to be times when it's going to bubble up. And so it's frustrating because it's an unavoidable question. And at the same time, Solomon says, you can't fully grasp the answer to that question on your own. So he says, it is an unhappy business that God has given the children of man to be busy with. Gives us a hint at the results of his tests there. Even Solomon, a man who's acquired great knowledge and wealth and wisdom, he can't change the outcome of his discoveries. Look at verse 14. I've seen that everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What's crooked can't be made straight, and what's lacking can't be counted. And I said in my heart, I acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I perceived that this also was but a striving after the wind. It leads him to this place of discouragement. Verse 18, and much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So he tells you, in in the end of chapter 1, he's saying, I tested all these things, and let me just tell you the result before I dig into them in chapter 2, before I get into the details. All is vanity. Now, if you are here last week, you're like, here we go again, right? Is this going to be 14 weeks of being told everything's meaningless over and over and over again? The answer is no. But as Pastor Clint reminded us last week, remember, what Solomon is doing. He is depressing us into dependence upon God. Clint used the helpful illustration of a renovation. He's tearing the house down to the studs so that it can be rebuilt. And here's the good news this morning. There is a glimmer of hope in our passage. Maybe you heard it in the the reading at the end of chapter 2 as Marie was, was reading. There is a sense of hope. So in summary, if we were to put all of this Sort of in, in, in a statement, what is Solomon saying here? Well, here, here's what's happening in our passage this morning. He's teaching us, if you look to things under the sun to bring you ultimate satisfaction, you will not find it. You will not find it. But, if you delight in God as the source, you will enjoy his gifts rightly, even in the despairing vanity of this broken world. That is what Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 12 to chapter 2 verse 26 is teaching us. So what he's doing here is he's he's taking four things under the sun and he's dropping them into the tank, if you will. Will it satisfy? Number one, he looks at finding satisfaction in earthly pleasure. We see that in chapter 2 verses 1 through 11. 
Number two, he, he looks at finding satisfaction in wise living, verses 12 through 17. Number three, finding satisfaction in productive work, chapter 2, verses 18 through 23. And then finally, we get this glimmer of hope, finding satisfaction in God. Chapter 2, verses 24 through 26. So that's where we are headed this morning. So number one, let's look at this first test. Finding satisfaction in earthly pleasure. Chapter 2, verse 1 says this. I said to my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself, but, and he gives us the answer, behold, this was also vanity. So the question is first this. Will earthly pleasures bring satisfaction to the human heart? Now here, this is, this is a, 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 just a jam-packed section. You can really divide this up into nine different earthly pleasures, but I try to sort of sum it up into three headings. So he gives us a list of pleasures he pursued. First, he says, he talks about laughter. Will laughter satisfy? Or you could say, will a life of mirth and levity bring satisfaction? Verse 2, I said of laughter, it is mad. <laughs> and of pleasure, what use is it? Now this is, this is interesting because it almost sounds like Solomon, the preacher, is contradicting other parts of Scripture. In fact, chapter uh, 17 of Proverbs, verse 22, seems to say the opposite, right? A joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. Now how many of you have had situations in your life where you've been discouraged You've been sort of down in the dumps, and a friend who knows you and loves you well has brought a sense of levity to the situation with a joke. It sort of stirs your heart up to joy. That's a, that's a good thing, right? In fact, not, next week in chapter 3, we'll see that there is a time to laugh. But that's not the question that Solomon's asking. He's not saying, can laughter be good? He's not saying, is there a time to laugh? The answer to that is certainly, absolutely. The question is, will it ultimately satisfy? To which he says, it will not. Now, have you noticed how oftentimes the most prolific comics, comedians, the funniest people in our world are often the most depressed? Isn't that, isn't that an interesting thing to note? I think of, of Chris Farley. A man celebrated for the laughter he, he brought to untold millions, but was plagued with a sense of dissatisfaction and meaninglessness in his life. So much so that he looked to, to drugs to medicate, eventually something that would, would kill him. And he spoke of this sense of, of emptiness in the midst of a world of laughter. He gets at this idea of its insufficiency when he says this, quote, This is Chris Farley of Tommy Boy fame. He says, when the roar of laughter dies down, the silence is a terrifying sound. He's saying it could not cover up and fill up my emptiness. Laughter is good. There's a purpose for it. It is a gift from God. But walking through life with a sense of levity where nothing is serious and everything is a joke, it's often an attempt to find a deep sense of joy that can't be found in laughter. So he says it will not satisfy. It doesn't pass the test. What about alcohol and sex? That's also in Solomon's list. I've put these two together because of how they relate to the physical nature. 
like what he says of alcohol in verse 3. I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom. And how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Now, there's an obvious reality here as we come to Scripture. Scripture everywhere speaks against drunkenness. Drunkenness will not satisfy. It, will, it may numb the pain for a while. It may temporarily give reprieve from a sense of emptiness, but it will not last. Proverbs 23 says this, Do not look at wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things. Your heart will utter perverse things. You'll be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. That passage is about someone who is engulfed in drunkenness. And the temptation for us here might be to say, okay, well, all right, that's not me. I don't have that problem. I can function, I can drink and still function, life is still fine. Okay, but, but notice what Solomon says here. He says he searched out with his heart how to cheer his body. Then he says, my heart still guiding me with wisdom. Solomon, he's not talking about drunkenness here. He's talking about a right enjoyment of the gift of alcohol. He's saying, I didn't get drunk we know that that is something that won't satisfy. He's saying, but I did try to see if wine would bring me a sense of happiness and satisfaction. That's an interesting caveat that he gives. His heart was still guiding him with wisdom. So you, you may say, no, I, I don't engage in a life of full drunkenness. Okay, but friend, are you looking to alcohol to bring satisfaction when you're stressed? Or when you're sad, do you feel like you have to have it to have a sense of relief? Solomon says, I tried that. I tried both. It did not satisfy. Now we acknowledge, we rightly acknowledge that alcohol is a gift from God. Jesus turned water into the best wine, top shelf stuff, in the wedding at Cana. But friends, we have to be vigilant in guarding our hearts as we just heard in the kids' sermon, question 17, the gift can very easily be twisted by our sinful hearts so it replaces the giver and becomes an idol of the heart. And friends, this extends beyond alcohol to food, to entertainment, to, to anything. And he says it will not satisfy. Now, if you jump down to verse 8, we also read of Solomon's sexual escapades. He sought to find meaning and satisfaction in sexual relationships. Now, verse 8 just says this, many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. But 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 3 gives us a little more detail, shocking detail. He had 700 wives who were princes and 300 concubines. And his wives turned his heart away. Now, I like the math. I'm not good at it, but that's a thousand. Right? Am I right? Someone check my math. We don't have time to get into all, like how all that worked. Clint and I spent like five minutes being like, how did, logistically, how did that even work in our office this week? But notice this. 
What happened with Solomon is he exchanged God's vision for sex within the confines of a lifelong covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. He exchanged that for selfish pursuits. That's what he did. Some of it was politically motivated, I'm sure. Some of it was you know, lustful desire, but whatever it was, it was a twisting of sex for himself. So before you and I respond with, with shock at that number, we also have to understand something. At a heart level, we commit the same sexual sin that Solomon did. Namely, taking God's vision of sex and saying it's about me and my pleasure. And that is the message our culture tells us time and time again. Notice the constant refrain in verses 4 through 8 from Solomon. I did this for myself. I tried this for myself. This was all about me. And it was vanity. It didn't satisfy. Friends, when, when sex is used for our selfish pursuits, our hearts are led astray. In Solomon's day, yes, it was shocking to us because it was polygamy and concubines. In our day, it's pornography, promiscuity, whatever it may be, it will not satisfy. And so if laughter won't satisfy, if alcohol, drink, and sex won't satisfy, what about wealth and possessions and status? Look at verse 4. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and I planted them, all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. Also, I gathered for myself silver and gold and treasure of kings and provinces. So I became great. And surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. You hear what he's saying? In short, I had the biggest and best houses. I had more money than anyone could imagine. I was the greatest of all time. But notice something here. There is a focus on the beauty of nature in Solomon's possessions. He spent a lot of time and resources building vineyards and pools of water, gardens, essentially state parks for himself, planting trees. It's as if he is trying to create an oasis of growth and pleasure for himself right there outside of Jerusalem. And a lot of commentators has, have picked up on this as they look at the Bible. It's as if he was trying to recreate the Garden of Eden. A place where there would be, a, a place where we were meant to find meaning and purpose in cultivating creation for the glory of God. So he spends lots of effort, lots of his time and money and possessions on these things. But no matter how hard he tries, no matter how much beauty he created... He cannot undo the curse of Eden. And he still finds his money, his status, his possessions, all of it meaningless. I think quarterback Tom Brady is a, a modern example of this. He's spoken a lot in public about that sense of, of emptiness with all that he has. This guy has a staggering net worth, 
a number of massive homes, a brand new yacht. I confirmed that this week because the old one didn't have enough space. And seven Super Bowl rings, more than anybody else. And he was once asked which of his Super Bowl rings is his favorite. And he responded with the most Ecclesiastes-like answer ever. He said, the next one. Right? The next one. Why? Because all the wealth, all the possessions, all the status, all the sense of feeling like I've arrived was not enough. It will not satisfy. And friends, none of us are on Tom Brady level with those things, but the same principle applies. That house, that, that pay raise, that promotion, that sense of whatever's next. Listen, that recognition, it can be a wonderful thing. Those things aren't wrong in and of themselves, but if you are looking to those things to give you an ultimate sense of meaning and purpose, you will always be saying, the next one will be enough. The next one will be enough. The next one will be enough. Until one day it's all gone and you're laid in the grave. So in sum, do these earthly pleasures pass the test? No. Verse 11, I considered all my hands had done. And the toil I had expended in doing, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. It's like trying to grab smoke. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Pleasure will not satisfy. The hedonistic pursuits will not satisfy. And that leads us to the second test. What about number two? Finding satisfaction in wise living. So he says, if I can't find it as the hedonist, maybe I can find it as, as the moralist or, or more so as the wise man. Living a life of conventional wisdom. Verse 12. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can man do who comes after the king? Only what has been done. Now, what, what he's doing here in, in verse 12 is he's looking ahead and saying, other kings are coming after me, so I'm going to do the hard heart work, and I'm going to, to write a definitive statement on wisdom versus folly, just as I kind of just showed you in pleasure. And he goes about this work, and as he does, he makes some key observations. First, he tells us that wisdom is good. This is great. This is like a breath of fresh air in the midst of Ecclesiastes. Verse 13, then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly. There's more gain in light than in darkness. Verse 14, the wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. This is so important for us because it shows us that while while the preacher is, he's very honest about the vanities of earthly pursuits, he's not a cynic, right? He speaks truth. He sees the good. It's, it's, a, it's a breath of fresh air because he's been sort of drowning us with a sense of the vanity of our lives. But now he's saying wisdom is better than folly. He sounds more like the Solomon of Proverbs 10.8. The wise of heart will receive commandments, but a babbling fool will come to ruin. He says, listen, if you seek to live a life of wisdom instead of foolishness, it will generally go better for you. The life of wisdom is better than the life of hedonistic pursuits. So in other words, number two is a little bit better than number one. But, but Solomon, he doesn't let us stay here long. He immediately adds to it this sobering reality. At the end of verse 14, he says, and yet I perceived that the same event happens to them all, namely death. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will also happen to me. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this is also 
vanity. It's like one of my favorite Twitter accounts called Daily Death Reminder. Right? If you're on Twitter, follow this. Every single day since July of 2016, they have posted the same thing. You will die someday. That's the tweet. Every single day. We may laugh at that, but you hear what Solomon is saying. He is saying, wisdom is good. We should pursue it. But do you realize that at the very end of the day, the wise dies just like the fool, and neither can bring anything with them? Verse 16, for the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. There's a story of Alexander the Great finding his friend Diogenes, the philosopher, alone in a field. And he was staring at a pile of bones. And Alexander approaches him and he asks him what he's doing. And Diogenes replies, I'm searching for the bones of your father Philip, but I cannot seem to distinguish them from the bones of the slaves. You hear that message? Different statuses, different pursuits different places in life, but eventually all of us will go to the grave, the wise and the fool, the rich and poor alike. Friends, you can be wise with your time, and you should. You can be wise with your money, and you should. You can be wise with your relationships and your intellect and your career, and you should. That's what Proverbs is for. But here in Ecclesiastes, what the preacher wants us to know is even if we do, even if we pursue those conventional wisdoms of life, One day it will all end. A life of wisdom with all its goodness, though it may be a little more acceptable than a life of hedonistic pursuits, it still can't bring you lasting meaning and satisfaction. And this, understandably, brings Solomon to a place of despair. This is one of the hardest verses in this passage. Verse 17. So, here's the result. I hated life. Because what's done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. This is strong language. And it's hard for us, I think it's hard for us to hear, because we're accustomed to a kind of of Christianity that is put forth, and by we I mean in the West, primarily American Christianity, that's put forth as positive, safe, smiley kind of faith. And therefore it is very, very thin and cannot handle the realities that the preacher is addressing here. And so responses like that tend to shock us. And what we tend to do is say, he must be losing his faith. It's one option. But he's not. Or we might be tempted to say, as as some people approach Ecclesiastes, because he talked like that, he must be writing sort of fictionally from the place of someone who doesn't know God. No. He is being honest. He is is not losing his faith here. In fact, he is expressing real and raw emotion from a place of faith because he knows God can handle it. He doesn't hate God. He doesn't say, therefore, I hated God. I despaired of God. He says, no, I despaired of life under the sun. I despair and hate the vanity of life in a sin-cursed world. And friends, that is not faithless. That is a good biblical response. He He is a lot like Jesus here. In John chapter 11, after hearing the death of his beloved friend Lazarus, 
John eleven thirty three. when Jesus saw her, that's Mary, Lazarus' sister, weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. The language for what Jesus was experiencing here is deep, despairing sorrow mingled with anger. You could say it's holy hatred at the reality of the vanity of life in a fallen world that's plagued by the curse of sin. Jesus is experiencing that at the death of his friend Lazarus. So friend, if you were despairing this morning at the vanity of life, you're in good company. Don't do what I know it's so tempting to do. Sort of suppress those emotions, hide those emotions. Cry out to the Lord for help. He can handle those things. Call out in pain to him. In addition to that, would you, would you share those burdens with a close, trusted brother or sister in Christ so they can bear them with you? Whether it's the general pains of life, whether it's seasons of suffering, whether it's just feeling like you're, you're losing the battle with that one sin that you've struggled with for years, bring your despair to him. And he models that for us here. In this statement, I hated life. I despaired of life. John Calvin writes, we're prompted by our own ills to contemplate the good things of God. And we cannot seriously aspire to him before we begin to become displeased with ourselves. And I would add that before we become displeased with the vanity of this world. Hear what Calvin's saying? You can't grasp the goodness of God until you grasp the vanity of God. The the meaninglessness of life under the sun apart from him. We can't comprehend light without knowing the reality of darkness. We We can't experience the refreshment of water unless we know what it is to thirst. And likewise, we will not see the goodness of God. We won't see our desperate need of him until we first despair of all of our attempts to find satisfaction and meaning in this life. Even if it's wise living. Will not satisfy. And that leads us then to number three. What about finding satisfaction in productive work? Now, just listen to his output here. Verse 18, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool. Yet he will be the master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This is vanity. Now, our, our culture is enamored with this idea of productivity. We're, we're, we're just like consumed with productive output. Uh, I read this week in an article by Melissa Gregg in the Atlantic called The Productivity Obsession. Listen to what she says. She says, in a hotel room on a recent business trip, nestled next to the telephone on the work desk, a little cardboard sign beckoned, help us make your stay more productive. Not restful, not comfortable, but productive. In the hotel room as in the office, she goes on, productivity increasingly stands as the default measure of accomplishment. So true in our culture. But, and she asks this great question, what is the belief system underpinning these exertions in a secular, multicultural society? Right? It's a great question. Now, let me just say, like we've said with all these other things, just as with wisdom and pleasure, Productivity is a good thing. My phone has apps that help me focus. 
right? To-do lists, calendars, Bible commentaries. I have a computer. I have this very helpful, productive iPad that I'm using right now. We're, we're not knocking productivity here. It helps us do our work efficiently and, and do it well. Likewise, work itself is not evil. It is a good thing. God created us to work and keep his creation. Even after the curse of Genesis 3, which means work is often toilsome and hard, there is still a basic goodness to work. But there is a belief system. Melissa Gregg is picking up on it. There is a belief system that's prominent, especially in a place like Greater Boston, that says, I will find my sense of meaning and satisfaction and completion Enjoy in the output of my work, in my productivity. We can easily believe that life only has meaning and I only have worth if I'm highly productive and getting a lot done. And, and, and Solomon just throws a, a rock at our glass house of productivity. And it's astonishing as we consider what he did. He was, he was a manager to oversee all of his building projects. He was an engineer who, who built and designed gardens, an architect. He was a, a politician who led a nation. He was an intellectual who published written works. He was a very productive person, and he considers all of that, and he says, it will not satisfy. Why? Because you can't take any of it with you when you die. All of it will one day be gone. In, light, in addition to that, someone else, deserving or undeserving, will benefit from it. Verse 18, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And on top of all of this, Solomon gets at something that I think so many of us experience. Not only will it not come with us when we die, but it leaves us feeling exhausted and dissatisfied. Verse 23, for all his days are full of sorrow and his work is vexation. Listen to this, even in the night, his heart does not rest. Many of us have felt that before. We've followed the rat race. We've sought to find our hope in productive, our work, our output. And we, we get home and we, we lay down at night and there's no sense of rest and satisfaction. Just exhaustion. And the preacher is like a, a broken record here. I realize we don't listen to vinyl albums anymore so that idiom might be lost. But a poly, polyvinyl record, if it was severely scratched... The groove would just jump into, the needle would just jump into the same groove and play the same audio clip over and over and over and over again. And I know we hear that already, and we're only in week two of this book. But he's, he's going around and saying, vanity, vanity, vanity. It will not satisfy. It will not satisfy. So then, we have to ask, is there any hope? Is there anything that satisfies? And the answer to that question is yes. And that leads us to number four. If it's not the hedonistic pursuits of pleasure, if it's not a life of wisdom, if it's not productive output in our work, then what is it? Number four, finding satisfaction in God. Now, this closing section, these few verses, we have to be honest here. We don't get a full theology of joy and satisfaction from the preacher. But we do get a little beam of light that shines in the darkness of despair. And so we're taking that beam and we're following it back to the source. First, he tells us in verse 24 that we can take joy in the gifts of God. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. 
For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Now here, Solomon sounds a lot like the wisdom book of the New Testament, the book of James. Chapter 1, verse 17 says this, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. See what he's telling us? Every gift has a source. And the source of those gifts, the source of all of these things I've tried to find my satisfaction in themselves, the source of those things is God. Here's the biblical logic, again. If you look to earthly pleasure, wise living, productive work, or anything under the sun to bring you ultimate satisfaction, you will not find it. But if you see and delight in God as the source, you can enjoy such gifts rightly, even in the despairing vanity of this broken world. Here's how Paul puts it in 1 Timothy. He says, everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Acknowledging God as the source. For it's made holy by the word of God in prayer. Ray Steadman asks, isn't it strange that the more you run after life, panting after every pleasure, the less you find it. But the more you take life as a gift from God's hand, responding in thankful gratitude for the delight of the moment, the more that seems to come to you. Friend, do you see God as the source of life and blessing and joy? I pray you do. And, And when you do, live a life that cultivates gratitude for his endless blessings to you, both physical and spiritual. He is the source. He is where true joy is found. He goes on also to tell us that God is gracious. Look at verse 26. For to the one who pleases him, God has given, it's grace language, wisdom and knowledge and joy. God gives joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. And this, life of the sinner, also is vanity and a striving after the wind. So hear what he's saying. Here's who gets this. The one who pleases God gets this true joy and satisfaction and fulfillment. Now, if you've been paying attention to our kids' sermons in the New City Catechism, you you see a problem here because you know that no one pleases God. Question 13, can anyone keep the law of God perfectly? Answer, since the fall, no human has been able to keep the law of God perfectly. Question 15, since no one can keep the law, what is the purpose of the law? God's commands. That we may know the holy nature and will of God, the sinful nature and disobedience of our hearts, and thus our need of a Savior. So we can't please God, we need a Savior. So then, who will be the one who will please God on our behalf, that we may receive his grace and find satisfaction in him? Who will be that Savior? Friends, Jesus. Jesus. A thousand years after this preacher king wrote this book, another preacher king would come to Jerusalem. And of him, at the start of his ministry, the father would say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This this preacher king, Jesus, would tell a crowd of weary, soul-hungry sinners like you and me, I am the bread of life. 
Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Friends, that's satisfaction language. This preacher king would tell a Samaritan woman who pursued pleasure and meaning in all of the wrong places, all of the the pleasures of life. And he would tell her in love, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Satisfied. This preacher king would stand up on the last day of the Feast of Booths and say, if anyone thirsts, let him come and drink. Whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water welling up to eternal life. He came to live under the vanity of a sin-cursed world. Christ came to die a death on a cross in our place, becoming the curse for us, and he rose from the dead, undoing the curse caused by the fall, that we who trust in him may have salvation and satisfaction. Search no more. Thirst no more. Christ alone satisfies. And so he says to each of us this morning, come to me all you pleasure seekers. Come to me all you trying to find life and meaning in the wisdom of this world. Come to me all you workaholics. Come to me all you weary sinners and I will give you rest. I will give you life in abundance. And friends, here's the beauty of the gospel. That promise of joy and satisfaction, we don't wait for eternity to enjoy that. We receive it now and then we begin to enjoy the pleasures of this life as gifts, but not something to bring us ultimate joy. We give thanks to the giver. So friends, only Christ passes the test. Only Christ can keep us from from being drowned in the despair of vanity in worldly pursuits. And only Christ will satisfy. So let us, either for the first time or for the 10,000th time, come to Christ in faith. Let's pray together.